We have been doing this series on Where is My Honor? And now we're talking about the living God. And I chose to address the last chapters of the 30s in Isaiah because I do believe that that is uh, Herbert Armstrong's work in the former temple and that truly, uh, since he died and the two unclean birds, uh, name of Tkach, took the church back to Babylon and set it on its base as it is described in Zechariah 5, that the church has been, as Isaiah put it, the sons, the ministry of the church have been emasculated. They have been uh, eunuchs spiritually. Uh, and God used that particular analogy um, advisedly. I want to add a comment to that that came to mind. They are capable of printing booklets. They are capable of having broadcasts and television programs. They're doing those things. The point is, they are not engendering children for the kingdom of God or the church of God. They cannot produce children, and that's why he used that particular analogy. It's like the church can sow seed, but it accomplishes nothing. So it is a very powerful analogy of what occurred. And then God shows that there has to be a voice crying in the wilderness, spiritually and physically, and that a warning has to be made. And the message was that all flesh is as grass and will wither, and we are beginning to see that withering beginning in the economies and the lives and the famine that is coming upon the world now. Part of it is, Behold Your God. And that's where this series comes in on the living God, because God is in the process of beginning something that is going to spread worldwide, and He is going to be known as the only true and living God by the time this is done. Now, lest I forget, I want to backtrack here for a moment to Purim. And during the sermonette, uh, it sparked a thought or two, and that is that Esther is a direct type of the end-time remnant church. I see no way around that. Uh, she was there in a relationship with God to some degree and with Cyrus or uh, Asa Uiris, as it should be said, uh, just as Joseph was with Pharaoh and God, just as Moses was with Pharaoh and God, just as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were with Nebuchadnezzar and later with Cyrus and Daniel. So Daniel is an end-time book, and there will be a Cyrus again. And that Ahasuerus, Uerus, uh, uh, was that Cyrus that we speak of. So we find that the church, in this context that we're going to get to today, uh, is involved now, the point has been brought up, and people have wondered, well, what does Esther have to do with anything? God isn't even mentioned there, the commentaries will say, and people have brought that up. I think that is part of what fits this, and that is that the church of God overall, 
does not have a relationship with God at this point. Just as those Jews did not have much of a relationship with God. Now, they fasted, they prayed, to whom? I mean, God is implied there, but He is not named. And I think that the reason for that is the same as what we are seeing today. Now, the whole church, all of us, would like to think that we have a good relationship with God, right? And all those who say, I'm a Philadelphian, are by that very statement saying, I have a wonderful relationship with God, right? Then why did he spew us out of his mouth as vomit? If someone sees you and pukes, what does that say about your relationship? Well, now God clearly shows in several scriptures that he has turned his face from us. He can't abide to look at the church who is the candidate to be the bride of his son. He also states that when we turn to him with our whole heart, he will turn his face back to us and he will bless us as we have never been blessed before. So the Jews were in a dire consequence or situation with consequence in the book of Esther. They began to fast and to pray to God and no one else. And as a result, he turned and worked conditions out so that they were delivered. And when you understand it in this context, the story of Esther becomes very, very important. And when you understand the Cyrus we are about to talk about in Isaiah 44 and 45, in relationship to the church... And God, beginning to show his hand that he truly is God, and begins to work with a remnant people, then you understand where Esther was between the king and God. We are in the exact same position. Perhaps we need to understand that better, because there are a few that say, well, why keep Purim? That isn't commanded. It is not commanded, except it is part of God's word. And we are to live by every word of God. What Esther is, is a book about a historical situation that has prophetic overtones. And it has everything to do with the church at the end. And as we seek God and seek deliverance, then he promises that he will turn and that will happen. That is why he says, cry aloud and spare not and tell my people their sins. He wants us to repent, to change, to grow, to overcome, to seek him with our hearts, and then he will turn his face and bless and deliver. Purim is a very, very important message for today. And the very setting of it, without the mention of God, shows what our relationship with God has been. And that is why Isaiah 7 and 8 mention Emmanuel, or God, with us. Because God is still salvation in a general sense. But he has not been with the church. 
He has allowed it to go back into Babylon, and he has made the church units spiritually in the world today who cannot engender children for God. So God is going to begin to work with a remnant of people who will turn to him. And this generation of people that has been called will not die out until this is finished. Now, when we read last week in Isaiah 43 and 44, several times, you are my witnesses that I am God. He has determined to use people to help prove that he is God. Now, he could do it in other ways, but he has always worked through people. And you and I have opportunity to be some of those people if we respond correctly and do what we should do. It is open to those in United and Philadelphia and living and going on name three or four or five hundred more if you wish. It is open to people still at home on their couches. But God is going to stir them and they are going to gather. And unitedly, Unitedly, they will work together to show that God is God. And he says down here, in verse 22, one of my favorites in this section, I have blotted out as a thick cloud your transgressions and as a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. It is a prophecy, and it has to do with the end-time church. It does not have to do with physical Israel. He will redeem them later, but he is redeeming a remnant of the church beginning very shortly. So he says that is something to joy about in verse 23 of Isaiah 44. God stretched forth the heavens, and he is the one who made the earth by himself. He didn't need any help. Now what he is going to do, <coughs> as we have seen in the background leading up to today, so he's going to prove to the world with an end-time work that he is God. We can be a part of that. Now, what does he say? We read this, but I want to emphasize it as we move on. Verse 25, he frustrates the tokens of the liars. Now, we have a lot of liars on the earth today, and there are professors and intellectuals who understand to one degree or another, that history has been doctored to their own purposes. They understand at least enough about it that they have been willing to hide evidence and dismiss evidence and call it a fraud when it has turned up. So they're liars because they want to maintain what they already believe and desire to have taught to the masses. They do not want the truth to come out. It will change and distort their view of history. And enough of them know that there are treasures buried either under, they think, that Jerusalem in the Middle East, and boy, have they honeycombed it and found nothing. No evidence of any Israelite being there prior to 1600 or 1200, depending on who you talk to, B.C., up until that time. So, they're lying. It's not there. It makes diviners mad. 
Now, what he is going to do is he's going to turn the world upside down. And those who think they can tell you the way things are, it's going to drive them start raving mad. Let's understand what God is saying here. These aren't just words. This is Isaiah writing what will happen today. That turns wise men backward. Knocks them over backward. Now, there are a lot of wise so-called men who think they have a lot of knowledge and truth today. Both on a religious and a uh, geological, archaeological historical basis, and they're going to be knocked flat of their backs, and makes their knowledge foolish. They're going to be proven foolish. Fools. History will be rewritten. Knowledge will be rewritten. And God now will proceed to show exactly how he intends to do that. He is going to forgive a group of people. He is going to turn his face to them, and God will be with them. That's why the prophecy of Emmanuel is in Matthew 1, is that there would be people who would recognize Emmanuel, not just Yeshua or Joshua. They were to call him that at that time, and henceforth, until the end. And then... A realization will come upon people that God is with us. That Emmanuel is what he wishes us to use. And then it gets rid of the arguments about how you say the Savior's name. Don't have to worry about that anymore. So it's a prophecy. All right. Let's understand how deeply this is going to affect. Because the world does not believe there is a living God. He's a figment of the imagination. They have their own idols. We have our own as well. Any kind of covetous, covetousness or fornication or adultery or lying is idolatry. Colossians 3, 5, I think it is. So the world does not know God. They know a false God. And here's what he's going to do to confound the liars, the diviners, and the wise. This, this is such a beautiful section of Scripture that God inspired Isaiah to write. And he used the history of Esther and her relationship with Cyrus. And Daniel uses the original uh, historical record of Cyrus and Daniel, to show what would be in the end time in the closed book that is Daniel. So, Esther is tied in very directly with the book of Daniel, and Cyrus is tied in with the end time church, as is the book of Daniel. So, what God is saying here is that the things that have to do with a Cyrus figure in the end are going to be part and parcel with his getting him honor on the Gentiles and the world. And we have opportunity to honor him ahead of time, and he will work with us if we submit 
to help establish his honor with the world. Now, what a high calling that is to help prove to the world that God is God. What higher calling could you have? And he's talking to the church when he said, you are my witnesses, not just to two people. He is going to use a group of people, a remnant, to prove that he is God. Now, he is going to tell us here how he is going to go about that. Now, in Isaiah 40, it starts showing that message that has to be given. And then he says, if you will do this, you are my witnesses, and I will use you, okay? Verse 26, that confirms the word of his servant. Now, that would be his servant Isaiah. It would be any servants who correctly read and understand, preach Isaiah today, and performs the counsel of his messengers. That says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. Well, is not Jerusalem inhabited today? What do you mean, shall be inhabited? There is a Jerusalem, the original, that is not inhabited today. It has been desolate for many generations, as Jeremiah and Isaiah point out to us. And only jackals and lizards would live in the true Jerusalem. That's Scripture. That does not have to be interpreted. It's just a plain, flat statement. So, this Cyrus will say to Jerusalem, You shall be inhabited. And to the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof. Now, in that Jerusalem and that Israel over there, there are towns of Judah, and they are inhabited, and Jerusalem is inhabited. So he's talking about a different Judah and a different Jerusalem that has been desolate for many generations, that is going to be re-inhabited and raised up. Now, won't that throw them for a loop? When it becomes obvious, and they cannot deny, that the true Jerusalem is not where they think it is, it will be established in its own place, as Zechariah 12, 6 says. Even in Revelation 11, it says, the Jerusalem where our Lord was killed, not the one that is there today, the false Jerusalem that is there. So this is a statement by Isaiah from God that this shall be done. This is the God that says to the deep, be dry and I will dry up your rivers. If you go to, I think it's chapter 51, it talks about the Red Sea and, and Jordan. So he's saying here, this is the same God that could open the Red Sea. This is the same God that could back up the Jordan River so they could walk across. He is establishing here I have the power to do what it is that I have said I will do. So he is not making a statement here that we can spiritualize away in some form or fashion. He is making a statement that this is going to be a worldwide awakening as to who the true God is. That says of Cyrus, so now he's going to say... I can back up Jordan. I can 
part the Red Sea. And I can raise up a Cyrus who is going to do my will. That's the God we're dealing with here. Let's understand. That says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Now, he called Nebuchadnezzar, a very wicked Gentile king, what? My servant, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar used, I mean, God used Nebuchadnezzar to accomplish his own purposes. And in that sense, Nebuchadnezzar served God. But what was the point there? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood against Babylon and won. God is going to raise up people here at the end who will stand up against Babylon and will win. Are we ready to stand? Do we have faith and trust in a living God who can deliver us from the fiery furnace? We read it last week, back here somewhere. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Neither shall a flame kindle upon you. That's chapter 43, verse 2. We will face some of the same things that those men faced. That's why God put them in the book of Daniel, the end time book, sealed up until this time. Because they are for today, even as this story in Isaiah is for today. The set of Cyrus, now Cyrus was a Gentile king, remember that? Just as Nebuchadnezzar was a servant, Cyrus was and became the husband of Esther. So there was a close relationship between the original Cyrus and Esther, just as there was between Cyrus and Daniel, and Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. So the end-time church is going to have an alliance with, a close working relationship with, a man who does not know God, does not understand Him, and yet will do all God's pleasure, as it says right here. That says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Now, he is not talking about the spiritual temple here. The spiritual temple, we all know, must be built. In us, as individuals, and as a church, the spiritual temple. But a Gentile who does not know God, and it says down here twice that this Cyrus does not know God, he would have nothing to do with building a spiritual temple or a church. If he were to be involved in building something, it would be physical because he's not converted. He doesn't know God. I think it confirms that a physical temple must be built. Not by the Jews, but by God's witnesses that He is God. The Jews cannot witness that God is God because they don't know God. He divorced them and, told, and Christ told them, I'll have nothing more to do with you till you accept the apostles that I sent. 
So forget about the Jews. Will they build a temple over there? Probably so. But it will be a false temple. It will be a Jewish temple. It will not be God's temple. The Jews cannot build God's temple. It has to be the spiritual Jews who do it. And it is the spiritual Jews, not those physical Jews, who are going to be witnesses that God is God. Okay? So Jerusalem will be built, and the foundation shall be laid. Now, we could go back to Ezra and Nehemiah and see how this played out in history. It's not just the story of Esther, but it is laid out there in building first of the temple uh, in Ezra, and then the building the walls of Jerusalem in Nehemiah, and how God was involved in it, and how those Gentile kings gave permission, they funded it, they took care of it, they made sure it happened, they didn't do it themselves, but they commissioned God's people to do it. And no one else was allowed to help, if you read those stories. Now, God is going to do the same thing today. He's going to take the spiritual temple and build a physical temple. And when you read Daniel and the 70 weeks prophecy of the building of Jerusalem and the walls, it's literal. The walls of that Jerusalem are there today. The false, counterfeit Jerusalem where Satan's headquarters is. And we will have nothing to do with that. Many people in the church are looking to the Jews and they're trying to move to Israel. They don't understand. All right, now let's get on into chapter 45 with the background of an end-time prophecy here about Jerusalem being built even as the book of Daniel confirms that there will be an order to do it, and from the time that it is done, then the abomination will be set up there. So he is talking about the same story that the book of Daniel is talking about here. Chapter 45. Thus says the Eternal to his anointed. Anointed here simply means he whom God has chosen or set apart for a specific job. And he has chosen the Cyrus at the end, the one that will do what God is talking about here, just as he chose Nebuchadnezzar and the original Cyrus to do what needed to be done. And just as the king delivered Esther and the Jews, God is going to deliver the spiritual Jews, even as he did Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. So God has an end-time Cyrus who will take the area of the original Jerusalem and build the temple in Jerusalem there, along with cities of Judah. So he set him aside to do this. Whose right hand I have held, I've led him by the hand, to subdue nations before him. So this individual is going to become very prominent. Subduing nations. Now, remember in Micah, where it says to go from Babylon, or to flee from the midst of Babylon, Micah 4, says go even to Babylon. 
Now, that's the one that a lot of people have left out. They say, get out of the midst of Babylon, so they want to get out of America, because America is the head of Babylon today. But his work will be done in the wilderness, out of the midst of Babylon, even in Babylon. Now, you can flee from it if you want, completely get out of the borders, but that is not the answer. The answer is, stand before them. Seven, even eight principal men will stand before the king of Assyria when he comes into our land, Micah 5. So we will make a stand right here against the beast and against the new world order in the promised land of Israel where God has placed us because we are Abraham's seed and we would be in the promised land. This is the promised land. Willie Nelson even has a song entitled Living in the Promised Land. Speaking of right here. And little does Willie know, this is it. This is where Abraham walked, and that's why you're here today. He may have gone and visited the Middle East, but this is where he came when he left Haran, or Iran after the flood. So, this is going to be so gigantic that nations will wilt before it. Let's understand the context here. This isn't done in a corner. It isn't a small thing that God is talking about. When he says, I will shake the earth once more at the end of the book of Haggai, this is what's leading up to that, brethren. This is huge. And I will loose the loins of kings. Now, when you loosen your loins, wasn't it Nebuchadnezzar whose loins were loosened? He wet himself. What God is going to do is going to scare people a great deal. To open before him the two hinged gates. Remember the original fall of Babylon? Where they diverted the river, Cyrus, and went in? God is going to give the keys to his people. He has always worked through a few, never through many. He pared Gideon down to 300. He worked through 12 apostles in a very small church to give a witness that the man who he was here was true to Christ. And he is going to do the same thing here at the end. He's going to use a few people, a few thousand, I believe, 10% remnant of what was the church, to prove that he is God. It is humbling to think that such as we could be part of that. But he doesn't give the qualifications of being mighty and noble, does he? He said, I'll take the weak in the base and I will confound the wise. Isn't that what it said up here? I'll make the wise men fall over backward, their knowledge foolish. All we have to do is turn to God with our whole hearts. And that makes us leading candidates to be a part of this effort. That's all that's required. 
Now, doesn't sound like much if you say it fast, does it? But try turning your whole heart to God. See how simple that is. (laughs) Not easy. We have our own focuses, our own desires, our own goals and purposes. We don't want to focus on God. We want to focus on what pleases me. That won't work. Now, Purim is a very important time. It is a celebration of the things we're talking about here. Let's not miss out on the celebration when it comes our turn. That's why I think it's important that we acknowledge Purim. It's part of the Word of God. It's not a commanded assembly like the Holy Days, but why is it there if it doesn't have meaning? Is it just a nice story? Book of Fables? No, this is an end-time prophecy about the chosen virgin, Esther. God is going to choose a virgin bride. Now, none of us are virgins, spiritually speaking. But God is going to forgive us and make us that. And the gates shall not be shut. Didn't God tell the church in the end time, I will set before you an open door and no man can shut it? Now God is going to open a door again and no man can shut it. And if they try to kill, destroy the church and or the two who will be leading that effort, fire will proceed and they will die. That is an open door. That is a door held open by God that cannot be shut. What happened in Worldwide was not even hardly a microscopic fulfillment of that. It had its place and it was important for calling people. But it wasn't the final open door. See how much the New Testament spins off of these scriptures? It's amazing. All right, the gates shall not be shut. Verse 2, I will go ahead of you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. I have learned enough about true history in the last three years. Well, actually more than that, but especially to know that it is truly, truly wrongly written, misunderstood, and confused. And it was deliberately done so by Constantine and some of those his mother named the places in the Middle East. They didn't have those names before. She named them after Bible names as part of the conspiracy and the cover-up and the counterfeit. These things we have been able to see. So God is going before this Cyrus figure to make the crooked places straight. And the gates of brass and the bars of iron that would prevent the true story being known will be removed and the truth will out. That's what God is doing. And He will show where the true Jerusalem is, where the true Zion is, and He will show true history. And I believe those records are indeed buried under Jerusalem, and they will come forth. They will astound 
the world and make them look foolish. And they will hate it with a purple passion and try to destroy it. And finally will set up the abomination of desolation there. But in the meantime, God is going to make this thing stand. And I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places. God is going to unveil the temple treasures. Those temple uh, pieces that Ezra and Nehemiah spoke of, that Daniel spoke of, that Belshazzar uh, drank out of, or Belteshazzar, whatever the name was, are going to be found. And they're going to prove where the true Jerusalem is. Those hidden treasures that God has put away are going to come forth. Now, they're not under that Jerusalem over there. They've honeycombed it. They can't find them. Now they think they're in Libya or somewhere else. It's going to astound the world when they come forth. That you, now, why? Now, remember in Haggai, just strangely in the context, God says, come and build the temple. And then he says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the eternal. He established to the church in Haggai and Zechariah that when they build a temple, the silver and the gold that comes forth belongs to God. Now, he tells us here in Isaiah 45 what he's going to do. He's going to reveal these things. He'll give them to this Cyrus, whom he has led by the hand to show where they are. I have met, I do believe, this Cyrus. And he is very close. And he has been able to prove, and I have seen, and you have as well, where the true Jerusalem is. Amazing. The evidence is incredible. And now we have seen so many scriptures which indicate that that Jerusalem cannot be the true Jerusalem out of Scripture itself. They describe that Jerusalem, the Jerusalem, the true one, and it doesn't fit the Middle East whatsoever. There are no hills where you may dig iron in that promised land, quote-unquote, as Deuteronomy clearly said there would be. This land abounds with iron and brass that can be dug from the hills. See, God makes a lot of qualifications of what the promised land is in His Word. And if it does not fit that little piece of land over there, then is God's Word wrong? Or is the story of that Middle East wrong? You can't have it both ways. When they absolutely, utterly contradict one another, then something has to be wrong. And the geology and the geography of that area and the minerals simply do not fit the scriptural record whatsoever at all. Too many contradictions. That's why God is going to do this. Why? Why are we going through this? What does it mean? Let's read on. 
I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Eternal, which call you by your name, am the God of Israel. That gives me chills to read. God is going to use these things we're reading about today to prove who He is. You who have not known will come to know based on what happens with this story. For Jacob my servant's sake and Israel mine elect. It is all being done to show who true spiritual Israel, spiritual Jacob, spiritual Israel, the church, is. Now, ultimately, once this is proved to the world and Christ returns, then the rest of Israel will know. But it has to be talking about the church, doesn't it? Here? Is this physical nation going to be used now, before Christ returns, to prove who God is? They don't even know Him. They don't have a clue. How can they be His witnesses that He is God? Do they preach the message of Isaiah 40? No, they do not. It has to be the church. And you and I can be part of this. He's going to show this Cyrus who he is. Did he not show Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego who he was? Did he ever? All right. Neb, go eat grass for seven years. We'll talk. Now I know who the God of Israel is. Did he not show Pharaoh who he was at the Red Sea? Did he not show the Amorites and Amalekites, Hittites and Hivites at the Jordan River and Jericho who he was through his people? Did he not in Acts 2 show all Jerusalem who he was through miracles? Cloven tongues of fire and healings and conversions? Did he not endorse his disciples become apostles and his church? Did they ever become great in number? No. But God certainly manifested who he was and who Christ was, did he not? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, brethren. We need to understand. We need to get it if we're to be part of it. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect. Who are the elect? You can't say the physical Israel today is God's elect. There's those who obey His commandments, and they don't. They reject them. Even the Jews reject them. They reject almost everything of God. They were serpents and snakes and whited sepulchers in Christ's day, and they certainly haven't improved over time. 
I have even called you by your name. I have surnamed you, though you have not known me. I read this to a man just recently. I wrote him a letter some time back, a couple years ago. Told him who he was. And he admitted to me just recently, maybe I haven't known God in the way that I should. And I started to say, no, you sure haven't and you still don't. But he's going to learn when he sees the fullness of what's about to happen. He's the one that God showed where Jerusalem is. And is very close to revealing the treasures too. Now, I could be wrong about that, but what I see, I see. What I have seen, I have seen. And what I've experienced, I have experienced. And some of you have alongside me, and you've seen the evidence. But he's not known God, and this man I'm talking about does not even know what his original surname was. We won't go through all those circumstances again, but most of you know the story. So, God gave him the name. Now, notice this statement in verse 5. I am the Eternal, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. The living God is going to make it known that there is no other God. Now, there is a false Messiah scheduled to appear very soon who is going to probably take the name Jesus. And the whole world is going to worship at His feet except the very few who keep the commandments of God. The whole world will accept that He is Jesus returned. But they do not know the true God. And he is going to prove by defeating that Jesus and throwing his skinny neck into the lake of fire. Or by his skinny neck, throw him into the lake of fire along with the beast. But God's true people are the only ones who will stand. We're not to run, brethren. We're not to run from it. We are to stand against it as God's witnesses that He is God. There is the challenge for us. What an honor and a privilege it will be for those who are chosen to show that God is truly God. Now, can we put aside some of our own desires and hopes and dreams and feelings, goals and purposes for a while, and focus on God Almighty? Can we do that? This is as important a thing as we can consider. Herbert Armstrong used to tell us, you're not here to save your own hide. You're here to do a work. And there was a work that he did. It was a limited work of calling. The work of choosing is now in process. 
And God is going to choose a remnant that He will stir to come and build His temple. I want each of us here to be part of that when it happens. And it is coming very close to happening. There is no God beside me. I girded you, though you have not known me. He's still speaking to Cyrus here. You don't know me. You haven't known me. But I've led you to understand these things anyway. So this isn't talking about a church person. This is talking about somebody who is not converted, someone who does not know God, is going to be used to do this. Now this has not happened in the past. Is there ever a time that the whole world has known that God is God? Yes. Noah's Ark. Eight people, by the time it was over, knew it. And that was all. The rest died. But it didn't take them long to depart from that living God, did it? Now, he's going to prove it again to all people. Now, that has not been known. There are Shintoists, there are Buddhists, there are Islamics, there are so-called Christians. There are all kinds of people who do not truly know the true God, even though they might give Him lip service and have His name. There are people who have, think they have the sacred names right. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But they don't know the God who is named there. You cannot come except the Spirit of the Father draw. And he has called out people whom he is now sorting through to choose the ones who will witness that he is God. Now here broadens this picture, verse 6. That they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west the sun rises in the east and sets in the west all around the world. So all the way, east to west, around the globe, people are going to know that there is none beside me. I am the eternal and there is none else. This whole context leads down to this point. That the treasures that are uncovered, the true location of Jerusalem, the true Zion as opposed to that little curb-high nothing over there that is not the joy of the whole land. Mount Zion stands most beautiful, the joy of all the land. I've seen that over there. You, you can't even find it. Unless somebody points out, that's it. It's curb-high. It's a cemetery. It's not the joy of the whole land. That doesn't fit the Bible story. Now God is going to show the truth. And it's going to set the religious experts and the scientific experts and the archaeological experts on their ear. Let's realize what we can be a part of. Let's get it. 
Now, we've been through here before, but this is coming on us very soon now. We best know the story, and we best be prepared. It isn't long. Do you see earthquakes increasing? Do you see famine and pestilence increasing? Do you see Matthew 24 and Luke 21 coming to pass before your very eyes, increasing week by week and month by month? We're there, brethren. And this story is going to come out very shortly. And it's going to prove to the world before it's done. There is only one God. And they're going to hate those who are used to show this. This is just the way God... He could rattle the earth. He could appear. Well, that's the way the false Messiah is going to do it. Somehow, they're going to cause him to come down in the eyes of the world and look like the story in the Bible. And it is going to confound the world. And they're going to say, Oh, Jesus, you have come. And it's going to be the false Christ. And it would deceive the very elect if it were possible. That's how powerful it's going to be. Unbelievably convincing. But God is going to be even more convincing. When it is finished, there will be no doubt who God is. Would you like to be part of that effort? I don't want to miss it. I want to be there. I want to be part of it. And that's why we're reading this. Because we need to believe. We need to know that there is a God who is very much alive today. And He counts our hair. That's how much He is involved in our lives. How much are we, by contrast, involved in what He is doing? If we are the apple of His eye, is He the apple of our eye? Or is something else? Is money? Is a mate? Is a car? Is a house? Is a place? The apple of our eye? Now, if we're going to be the bride of Christ, He needs to be the apple of our eye. He wants an attentive, alert, serving, giving, helping bride. He doesn't want someone who is half-hearted, half-asleep, apathetic, lukewarm, and Laodicean. He wants us to focus on what He is doing. When Herbert Armstrong said, my job is finished, the calling's done, go ahead and get the church ready, the ministry ignored that. Now you say, well, what can I do? Well, if you're going to be part of the bride, you can certainly be getting yourself ready. You can be working overtime, getting your focus on God and on the right kind of character and living by every word of God and bring every thought into the captivity. You think there's nothing to do? Man! 
There's plenty to do. Well, there's enough here physically to do. To serve and help and give with others and community effort. Some see things and do them. Others will do them if you ask. Others might do them if you pay them. Others wouldn't do it if you kicked their butt. So who's who? Are we a ready, willing bride? Are we ready to prove to the world that God is God? This is going to take fear of God, not fear of man. It's going to take courage. And it's going to take leadership, backbone, and faith to stand before the whole new world order as a light on a hill shining before God to prove that He is God. It's not time to run for the hills. When the abomination is set up in the holy place that God's people will build, then it's time to flee from the true Judea to the true mountains of Zion. But meantime, we're to be a light to the world, and we're to build a temple, and we're to build Jerusalem right before them. And He will be a wall of fire around us and a covert from the heat, and He will take care of us and protect us to accomplish His purposes. What a God that He would do that for a few people. Forgiving our sins and blotting them out as clouds before the sun. For the purpose of showing that there is none else but Him. I formed the light, verse 7, and create darkness. I made heavens and earth. I made sun and moon, he says. I'm the Creator. I'm alive. I do these things. I make peace and create evil. Now, God wants peace. Now, Job obeyed God, didn't he? Did God create evil by saying, Hey, Satan, look at my servant Job. Isn't he a fine fellow? Oh, yeah, but you give him everything he needs. Let's take all that away. You turn him over to me a while. I'll show you who he is. Now, did God create an evil situation for Job? Yes, he did. Job passed, finally, and won. And the devil tucked his tail again and ran. Just as he is going to run from us, if we're the faithful, and he'll go and persecute the remnant of her seed who have not repented and turned to him. And they'll go into the tribulation and martyrdom, and it's sad. That can be prevented if we will but turn to him with our whole hearts. I, the Eternal, do all these things. Verse 8, drop down, you heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. He is going before his true remnant to just pour out blessings in the first month, as Joel 2 says. Let the earth open, and let them bring forth salvation. So he's going to open up heavens, he's going to open up the earth. And that may be a reference back to the hidden treasures of darkness and the riches of secret places, that the righteousness of God will be revealed by some of the things that God has hidden that will be brought forth. Wow. And let righteousness spring up together. I, the Eternal, have created it. 
Woe to him that strives with his Maker. Don't you and I strive with our Maker? He has his goals, he has his purposes, and we have ours. And we want what we want. And sometimes we look beyond God, past God, around God, to try to get what we want. That's striving with our Maker. That's not somebody else. That's us. Yeah, the world strives with Him if they don't know who He is. But to strive with someone, don't you have to kind of know Him a little bit? Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. You know, here's the guy that makes the pots, and somebody comes along and breaks them, and the pieces of pottery laying there are going to argue with the one who made the pot in the first place about who's important and whose goals and purposes and needs should be met. Who's more important, the pot maker or the pot that gets broken? If we don't recognize the pot maker, we're going to be broken. So let's not strive with the pot maker. Let's accept him. Let's submit to him. Let's do what he says. Shall the clay say to him that fashions it, <laughs> what do you think you're making? Or your work, he has no hands? God is the master potter. We are the clay. Give credit to he who can take clay and make it into something beautiful. Clay can be real ugly, especially when you've got ten pounds of it on each shoe. Now, God gave us a piece of ground here that has basically clay, except where there's a sand overlay. And when it rains, it can get really nasty. Maybe there's a point to that. We're just clay. Clay can be pretty nasty stuff. But God can form it into something beautiful. So maybe he gave us physical clay here so that we might better understand that that which sticks to your shoes can be made into something beautiful to drink from. Verse 10, Woe to him that says to his father, What did you beget? Or to the woman, What have you brought forth? What, what does a baby have to say to its father and mother? What's this you have done? I'm smarter than you. I'm a baby. No, it just doesn't work, does it? Father and mother figured this out and they made a baby. So who's in charge here? The baby, the child, or the parent? Hello, parents. Who's in charge here? Do you do the child's bidding or do the children do your bidding? Do we have it fronters or backers? Oh, let's not hurt the children. That's the whole mantra of our civilization, our culture today. All for the children. Whatever for the children. What about the parents? We got it all upside down in our society. Turn our hearts to our Father in heaven. He's where the emphasis should be, not us children down here. He's in charge. We want the children taken care of. Oh, God, give me this. Oh, God, give me that. Oh, God, do this for me. Oh, make me happy. 
Now, we're supposed to please our Father in heaven. That's what we're here for. We're to please our bridegroom-to-be. We're not here to be mollycoddled, spoiled. God the Father knows what He's doing. We have a whole generation of church people say, Boy, my parents spanked me, so I'm not going to spank my kids. My parents didn't give me anything, so I'm, I'm going to give my kids everything. My children aren't going to have to work like I had to work. You're selling out to the devil when you think that way. Let's get it. I suddenly became really unpopular here in the last three minutes. Again. The children are to respect and honor their parents, not the children spoil, or the parents spoil the children rotten. Those children are to be taught the ways of God. They are to be instructed in righteousness. We turn them over to the state to teach them to be little commies. And it's wrong. Backwards, upside down. Honor your Father in heaven. Turn the hearts of the, fa- the children to their fathers, not the hearts of the fathers to the... Well, that too, but uh, who is to be in charge is the point I'm trying to make. Both need to honor and love each other, yes. But so many of us want to be liked by our children instead of respected. Love comes from Respect. Despite and rebellion comes from trying to be liked. Spare the rod, spoil the child. We're just not willing to do it God's way, are we? We want respectful, obedient, happy children. But we will not do it God's way all so often. We have the world's way that has been sold to us. And we've bought into it. Children need to work. They need to learn to be productive. Not sit around and be lazy and spoiled. Didn't mean to start a new series in the middle of the old, but let's not strive with God. Let's accept His way. He knows what He's doing. Is he not starting to spank, already spanked the church pretty good, disciplined it, spit it out? Isn't he about to do the same thing to all the nations of Israel and the whole world? Yes, he is. Why? So that they decide who the true parent really is and come to recognize him for what he is. And then learn to obey him. Because they are going to gain respect. Now, they're not going to like God for a while, are they? They're not going to like the witnesses, you, of who God is. Not going to like it at all. But when it's all done, they will finally respect Him. And they will mind and obey Him and love Him. That's what it's going to take.
And if you think that without being a parent and trying to be a friend to your children, you can come up with the right relationship, then you don't know God and you don't know His Word and you've accepted and bought into the world and Satan's system. I'm sorry. Time to repent. You can get angry at me if you want. The truth is truth. Either do it God's way or do it your way. And live with the results. I'm not here to be popular. Hello. I'm not here to be popular. I am here to cry aloud and spare not. And turn your hearts to your God. And you and your children's hearts to each other. And our hearts to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our fathers in the faith. And live as they lived. And there are fathers of the faith that are not even mentioned in Hebrews 11, that we need not ignore either. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, James, Peter, Jude. There are fathers in the faith too. Didn't Paul even describe the churches as my little children? We need to turn to their writings. We need to accept Christ and His writings. So does the little urchin need to say to the parents, verse 10, What is this that you begot? I'm more intelligent. I'm smarter than you are. All right. While you are still smarter, go out and get yourself a job. Find yourself an apartment, buy your own car, while you still know everything. Verse 11, Thus says the Eternal, the Holy One of Israel and His Maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hands command you me. God is laying out for us what He is going to do. And He says, if you're going to strive with me, you come tell me what's going to come to pass. No, Isaiah's laying it out for you. Do we accept it or do we not? Or will we tell God how it's going to be? I don't think so. I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their host have I commanded. I'm in charge, God says. I made it all. I created it all. The angels in heaven obey me. Satan doesn't and his demons. You can go that way if you want to, but boy, you're going to be sorry. He's going to prove who God is and who Satan is before this is all done. Then referring back to Cyrus, I think here, maybe even the leadership of the church. I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. He said up there, remember? That this Cyrus, this Gentile who doesn't know God, is going to perform all my pleasure. Chapter 44, verse 28. Just as Nebuchadnezzar, his servant, performed and took Israel captive to teach them a lesson. This Cyrus is one that he is going to raise up in God's righteousness. Not not Cyrus' righteousness. In God's righteousness. (coughs) I will direct his ways. He shall build my city. Jerusalem has to be built. That's part of the pleasure that God has, is that the true Jerusalem be restored. And he's going to use this Cyrus to do that. Well, isn't that what the story was in Ezra? 
Now, Cyrus didn't do the building, did he? But he opened the treasury and he told Ezra, go do it. You, you can do it. So he had the overall direction, but he didn't do the actual work. And the same will be true at the end time. He will fund it. He will direct it by saying, go do it. He shall build my city and he shall let my, go my captives, not for price nor reward, says the Eternal of hosts. So this end time Cyrus is going to provide what is needed without price nor reward. Isn't that the story of Ezra? The king opened the treasury and said, give them whatever they need. Here are the funds, use them as you see fit. Same thing is going to happen again. Doesn't it say in Isaiah 55, come, have milk and wine without money. I will take care of you. I will give you everything you need. That's just a few chapters from this first statement. And we're going to see the sequence of events. The gathering has to come before the collapse. And I think the gathering needs to come fairly soon, but the collapse is becoming more and more imminent, is it not? We have to have a chance. We'll see those scriptures as we go on. So, we have been captive of Babylon, haven't we? God is going to release us from Babylon. He tells us in Isaiah 52 to stand up or sit up, break the bonds of Babylon off your neck. Put God first. Obey God. Then he talks about the Passover and then about the gathering. Verse 50, chapter 54. Verse 14. Thus says the Eternal, the labor of Egypt, or Mitzrium, and merchandise of Ethiopia and of the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you, and they shall be yours. They shall come after you. In chains they shall come over. And they shall fall down to you. They shall make supplication to you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is none else. There is no God other than the true God. So people in the world are going to begin to wake up as a result of what God's people are going to do and He is going to do through them. So that as this horror comes across the world, they're going to begin to say, Those are the people of the true God. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could be used to help the world start to begin to understand who the true God is and then to begin to come and repent of the slavery of Satan's system that has held them in chains and the truth will make them free? This is our opportunity. And they will say, surely God is in you. And there is none else. There is no other God. Verily you are a God that hides yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. God has hid Himself. He has turned His face away. All these so-called Christians think Jesus is just looking down on them in love and pleasure. And is going to rupture them away. No, He's a God who has hid Himself. Christ spoke in parables that they might be taken and snared and deceived so that they would not be lost. He is a hidden God, but He's not going to stay hidden. They shall be ashamed and also confounded, all of them. 
They're going to begin to wake up and realize we've been worshiping the wrong gods all this time. They shall go to confusion together that are makers of idols. That includes us if we have idols, anything we put ahead of God. But Israel shall be saved in the eternal with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. So what God starts in His end-time witness church will spread around the world without end. We can be part of bringing peace and happiness and joy and a knowledge of God to the world. That's why he says, I'm going to set you on a hill and a candle is not to be hid. Used to the church ran from it because we feared persecution. Now persecution is about to come upon the church pretty shortly. And God says, don't run, hide, stand tall on the hill and let your light shine. Scary thought, isn't it? Got to change our whole approach from what it was in Worldwide. Now we've got to stand up and be counted. He does not want us to be spiritual eunuchs anymore. He wants us to have the testicles to stand up. Groups included. We're talking about spiritual ones here. For thus says the Eternal that created the heavens, God Himself that formed the earth and made it. He has established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Eternal and there is none else. He just goes on and on, doesn't he? This, this is still in the context of what has to happen and why those hidden treasures, secret places, have to be revealed. To show the world, from the rising to the setting of the sun, that God is God. So he just goes on and on about it. Let's get the point. He is a living God. And he is going to prove it to every man, woman, and child on earth. I'm not there yet. He's going to say it about every knee here shortly. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. God doesn't want us to run and hide. He wants us to cry it from the rooftops. Read Isaiah 40 about the message that has to go out and how powerful it has to be. And about crying aloud and sparing not here in a few chapters over in Isaiah. Not spoken in secret in a dark place. I said not to the seed of Jacob, seek you me in vain. This isn't a vain exercise we're going through, brethren. This overcoming, growing, changing trials, troubles, tribulations, and difficulties that we go through. And self-denial and everything else that we have to do. It isn't much fun. But it's not in vain. God didn't call us in vain. He called us here for His purposes. And let's be sure we focus on His purposes, not ours. I, the Eternal, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you that are escaped of the nations. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image and pray to a God that cannot save. We're supposed to escape from this world, not be a partaker of her plagues and her sins. Revelation 18.4 
Tell you and bring them near. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the eternal? These are living words from the living God here in Isaiah. He wrote this thousands of years ago for today. To you and me. Isn't that incredible? That he knew way ahead of time what would happen and wrote it all down, declared it from ancient time. And now we see these prophecies in detail working out in the church and now in the world. Wow. We believe in a living God with a living word, don't we? Have not I the eternal, and there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Are we, how long does this have to go on before people get the point? There is a God who is not far off and is not old and is not dead, but is still very active and interested enough to count the hairs of our head. Look to me, verse 22, and be you saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. You want to know what the end time message is? Boy, here's a bunch of it. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return. Now here's what I said, he said, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Before he's done, this is going to happen. I had rather bow my knee now than have him bend it for me. But I'm getting stiff knees in my old age, and it's hard. It's like my stiff neck I've always had. You know what I'm talking about. Surely shall one say, in the eternal have I righteousness and strength. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. He says in Isaiah 54, when he draws the remnant together, their righteousness will be of me. His righteousness, not our own. In the eternal have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In the eternal shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. And we can be the leading edge of that. We can be the first ones he works with as the spiritual temple to set an example to the rest of Israel so that when it is all finished, every knee will bow to God. Well, that's enough for today, but I think we need to grasp what is happening and what is about to occur and what it means. It's not just finding gold and getting rich. It's God's. And He is going to use it through a people and through even an unconverted man to prove that He is God. Let's be part of that.